Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I had the opportunity to travel to Austin. Among visits to too many taco and barbecue joints, I had to go visit Alan Graham and his team at the Community First Village. The visit was a revelation, and Alan, who has an exceptionally busy schedule, was gracious enough to make time to sit down with me. Alan is, well, I'll let him tell you. Well, my name is uh, Alan Graham, and I'm the founder of uh, President and CEO of Mobilos and Fishes, a nonprofit uh, organization that basically has three legs to its stool. Uh, one is a truck, a catering truck operation that goes out on the streets of Austin uh, every night, serving about 1,200 meals uh, to the chronically homeless. Uh, the second one is the Community First Village, of which you're uh, we're sitting in the middle of right now, which is a 27-acre, soon-to-be 51-acre master plan uh, RV park on steroids designed to lift the chronically homeless up off the streets. And then the third uh, leg to that stool is what we call Community Works, which is a micro-enterprise program meant to empower people into a cultivating uh, lifestyle. I had first heard about Alan's work when Sarah Dooling mentioned it during episode four of the podcast. I then watched his TED talk and read his book and was struck by how innovative, entrepreneurial, and transferable the work of Alan's team was to other areas of the country. To start our conversation, I wanted to talk about Alan's preoccupation with narrative. One thing that I really noticed in the way that you communicate and the way that you talk about this issue is the importance of story and the importance of narrative both in the book that you wrote and your TED Talk, you see people's stories differently than they do. And you tell a different story than they've probably been told their entire lives and that they tell themselves. Could you just talk a little bit about why story is important and how you see your role in kind of shaping a different story? Well, story, uh, I mean, if we back up just a hair, we believe that the single greatest cause to homelessness is a profound catastrophic loss of family. Mm-hmm. It's not the common narrative that's out there like drug addiction, mental health issues, affordable housing, living wages. Those are important issues, it's issues of justice. But uh, homelessness is a result of very broken families. Because all of these issues that exacerbate homelessness, those things that I just articulated, uh, already exist in all of our families. And so uh, we have stereotyped the homeless population in a a very negative light. Uh, They're lazy. They're drug addicts. They've chosen this. And stories begin to reveal uh, the truth. And when the truth is revealed in a, in a very effective way, then paradigms begin to shift in terms of how people view those uh, stereotypes. And, and that's the key, uh, because when the, when the paradigms shift, uh, it moves from a relax, 
a transactional thing that we're trying to fix into a movement into relationship. Mm. And stories move us into relationship and away from transaction. Mm. That's the power of storytelling. What about the relationship between oneself? I mean, for the for the person who has experienced homelessness, they probably felt prey to all those negative stereotypes and those negative stories that society tells. And you've given them a different narrative. I, I would imagine that that's pretty powerful for them. Well, these are the most uh, uh, despised, outcast, lost and forgotten uh, brothers and sisters uh, in our country. Uh, there's been an implosion with inside their families, like a nuclear bomb thrown into that cellular life with family being the original cell of social life. There's some kind of nuclear bomb that was just thrown into the middle of that deal. Uh, and then society as a whole uh, throws more uh, weaponry on top of that. Uh, and you begin to believe and take on the character uh, that people constantly uh, tell you who you are. You're worthless. Uh, you have no value. And when we move into the opposite of that, and we begin to value people uh, for a lot of the things that they've done in their life, which are, are valuable, uh, uh, but not honoring the things that are not good things in their life. People don't honor me for the things <laughs> that, uh, that perhaps I shouldn't have said or, or shouldn't have done. But when we are honored for the things and valued, because see, inside every human being, Every one of us, from the moment of our conception, there are two innate qualities. One is that you and I desire deeply to be fully and wholly loved, mm -hmm. and we desire deeply to be fully and wholly known. Mm. You, you, wanna, you want somebody to say, Bryce, you are valuable. I want people to be able to say, Alan, you, you are valuable. The, the contributions that you're making are, are valuable. That's exactly how people that live underneath our bridges and in our shelters and our urban camps uh, feel as well. They want to be valued. But if we completely and abjectly and consistently devalue them, they take on that persona. Yeah. And so moving into the opposite of that deal uh, is actually part of the miracle of the work that we do. So, so let's talk about Alan Graham's story. How did you come to be doing this work, and uh, how long have you been doing it, um, and what was that transformation for you? Well, this uh, we're celebrating our 20th year Congratulations. Uh, right now from the founding of Mobile Living, which is, it goes back a, a couple of more years uh, prior to that. Very simply, a spiritual uh, journey on my part. Uh, ended up going on a men's retreat in 1996 that had I known that men were going to hold hands with each other and hug it out. In that bromance way, I would have never gone <laughs> uh, to that deal. But uh, that's yeah. not on the uh, on the pamphlet. <laughs> that was not, 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 not on the pamphlet, and uh, but it turned into exactly that. And uh, and I had a, a spiritual experience during that retreat that was uh, profound. That just had me asking God, "What do you want me to do?" And look, when we ask, we're I'm mostly thinking about the little things, not the big things. All right, you want me to become a, a lector at church or a Eucharistic minister? You want me to join the Knights of Columbus? My wife runs the 
the nursery thing. Uh, uh, you want me to cook barbecue or whatever, but these little steps of just saying yes, that philosophy of just saying yes, uh, led gradually uh, to the founding of Mobile Loads and Fishes. And then here we are 20 years later. Yep. And and before that, and you were an entrepreneur, you were, you were I assume, doing pretty well for yourself. Um, can you talk about bringing that entrepreneurial spirit to this world? I mean, I think that, you know, I imagine that there's a set of norms within the social service community that you probably broke <laughs> and mistakes that you made along the way. Yeah, I think we've broken. I think we're very disruptive. Mm -hmm. I think we're a disruptor. I think I'm a disruptor uh, on a number of different levels, an entrepreneurial uh, a disruptor. And I'm a serial entrepreneur from, I mean, it's my DNA, mm -hmm. period. And uh, when I learned how to pronounce and spell the word entrepreneur back in about 1978, it was a life changer for me because I needed to be in a space where at least I felt that I had control, that I wasn't inside of a box. There's a, there's a, a slight ADD nature to who I am and I need to be on the move, you know, and, and entrepreneurialism uh, creates the space to be able to uh, to do that. And then I'm a challenger. Uh, I want to take on the challenges that nobody else wants to take on, mm -hmm. like serving the most despised, outcast, intractable people on the planet to show that there's another way. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a challenge. I want to do it in ways that uh, nobody else has ever done uh, before I want to disrupt the system in order to be able to bring attention and light uh, to the beauty of these human beings and why we should uh, invest uh, human capital as much as we possibly can into these despised, outcast, lost, and uh, forgotten. Uh, so I think, um, and I didn't realize that when I founded the organization and the truck ministry that it was going to lead to a real estate development. That was not on my agenda, but uh, as God was moving me out of the real estate development business and into the nonprofit world, which took a few years, but I knew pretty quickly that I was headed in that direction. And then once I'm extricated from that life, he begins to draw me back in to the real estate <laughs> development business by uh, coming up with the idea for uh, Community First uh, Village. So it was like it was like a blessing from God in my mind because I love real estate and I love uh, being able to create. Yeah. Um, so you started the nonprofit as Mobile Meal. Is that right? Mobile loaves and fishes. Yeah. Yeah. And and what were you doing at that time? Uh, from professionally? Well, what what was what was the impetus of why you wanted to go out and have the mobile catering trucks and and Well, I had been asked by my church in 1997, I think, uh, if uh, and my church had been asked by our local Catholic charities to partner with them on something called the SAC lunch program, okay. Social Assistance Christian Kitchens. They wanted us to be one of five churches 
that would uh, once a week provide, prepare and provide 50 fat meals mm -hmm. to the day labor site that was downtown okay. next to the, the homeless operation down there so that men and women that got the day labor job could go with the lunch to that day labor job. So I started, I said yes uh, to take that on. Uh, then I started meeting with the Catholic Charities people, and uh, I don't know how to describe this, but uh, uh, I, I think there may be a narcissistic thing that I just got to leave. And, uh, and uh, you know, from an operational point of view, I like things to be lined up. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so, basically, those guys just weren't prepared to put this whole deal together. And I said, let me do this, man. Yeah. It's not going to be a lot. Of... So we created this deal. So uh, brought five churches together, all the process and procedure. Uh, and once a week, we were making these sack lunch meals. Mm -hmm. And then uh, sometime in uh, about the springtime of 98, my wife and I were having coffee with a girlfriend of ours. Um, I say that we were at Jason's Deli. My I've wife heard says, this is contentious, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've heard that. And so, um, Jason's Deli it is. And, um, it's, it's, it's our podcast. We're yeah, going to own the Jason's yeah, yeah. Deli. And, uh, and so, um, she talked about a ministry in Corpus Christi where multiple churches would get together on cold winter nights, pool their resources uh, to take to the men and women that lacked abundance on the streets. And at that moment, the image of a catering truck, two of them sitting right out here, uh, got into my mind as a distribution vehicle from those of us that have abundance to those that lack. Mm -hmm. That was it, man. Was Bam. It. And uh, when I started sharing that idea, I didn't share it at that time, but when I did share it with uh, Tricia a couple of weeks or however long later, she just looked at me and said, oh my God, here we go again. Because I get on point and I'm on point. Yeah. Uh, but then, uh, Jiminy Crickets, here we are, you know, five years later, uh, I mean, 20 years later, having served nearly, uh, six million meals, built this community, uh, built a reputation, a phenomenal brand that's, uh, it's been a magical journey. So I'm, it's, it's great that you mentioned like all the successes because people look at you and be like, oh yeah, this guy's got it figured out. He has some special conduit to another plane of being or of consciousness or or spirituality or whatever um and it's in this in some ways it's it's uh amazing and people honor you for it but it's also intimidating because i think man alan just figured it all out he did it all right the first time but you made some mistakes along the way i wonder if you could just share a couple of the mistakes that you made along the way to know that it, it's not an easy path <laughs> well um i'm one of these guys that uh you know, success without failures, there's no such thing. And um, and so I'm one of these guys that have always embraced things not going right mm -hmm. because it gives me the opportunity to uh, look at, you know, how we're doing things. And so, you know, I talk to our staff all the time, which has grown quite large, and just say, you, you can't mess this up. If you're focused on our vision, mission, core values, and goals, there's nothing that you can do to mess this up. Now, when we make mistakes, or we have to dial something in, or an idea didn't work out, let's not worry about this, man. We're going to move forward. 
beyond that and learn uh, from that deal. And that happens all the time. And so there's just a spirit of let's get some mud on the wall and not worry about uh, what's going to slide down and, and not work. So to go through, you know, all those little nuances uh, would, would almost not be worthy, but it is worthy to just say there's been plenty of them and there will be, be more. It's the people that are afraid of that that have to worry more than the people that aren't afraid of that. People that are afraid of those setbacks uh, are the ones that get paralyzed and can't move forward. And I, I don't want any paralysis mm -hmm. uh, here. Mm -hmm. I, I want to try things mm -hmm. and see how they work. And we're doing it all the time, mm -hmm. uh, trying new things. Sometimes they just don't don't work. Mm -hmm. I, that that message of kind of getting it mus messy and putting some mud on the wall also seems to be with within your your interpretation of faith that, uh, what do you call it, uh, faith con carne? Uh, gospel, gospel con, con carne. carne. Yeah, yeah, well, faith con carne, <laughs> putting meat on your faith. It's, uh, but look, you can't master plan something to the infinite degree prior to implementing it. That's not how great progress is ever done. What you do is you come up with these little mustard seeds of an idea, and then you plant the damn seed in the ground, and then you start nourishing it. And so metaphorically, uh, we went out and bought one fifth-wheel RV in 2005 and lifted one guy up off the streets into a privately-owned RV park, mm. and then we began to nourish that seed that ultimately evolved into this deal. And that nourishment was an invitation for other people to join with us because like I'm not a landscape architect. I can look at landscape and go, that's beautiful, you know, but could I really sit down and, you know, put the cobblestones in exactly the right place and match the plant material with the region that we live? No, that's not my, that's not my gifting. So, uh, you begin to invite people uh, into the vision right. that want to participate. Right. So and I think that the idea of that transition from serving people who are experiencing homelessness out on the street to then inviting people to work with them is a pretty profound one. And, and was that your idea at the outset, or did that evolve over time? Completely evolved over time. Had no clue. Okay. Uh, but there were three things about that truck uh, that turned out to be very critical. First of all, the truck went to where the people were. Okay. We didn't herd the people to where the food was. Got it. Secondly, when the truck went out, there was an abundance of brand new food on the truck. We're not a leftover uh, ministry. And when the truck arrived and people came up to the truck, they got to make choices based upon what was on the truck, what they were going to eat uh, for their meal at that time. Choice turns out to be a very profound human need. Sure. And then the third thing is, is that those that were serving and those being served were standing on the same side of the serving counter. What do you mean by that? 
Well, uh, if you look at the trucks out here, you, you open the, the door to mm -hmm. where all the food is on the truck, and you're on you're both on the same side of the serving counter. Whereas if you go to a soup kitchen, there's a window, and people are separated by this counter, and it's a transactional unit, 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 yep. unit, kind of a thing. Right. Whereas now, all of a sudden, uh, hey, my name's Alan. What's your name, brother? Bryce. Bryce. What would you like? Yeah. You know, and you begin to pick right. based upon the inventory that's on the truck. And in those first um, minute or two of that, you know, a relationship begins to be formed. And it's not a bunch of people assembling the plates over here and then pushing them through the window. And as people get out, it's, it's you and I assembling it together. Right. You're making the choice. I'm grabbing it. I'm putting it in the bag. And oftentimes, frequently, we're having a conversation. Yeah, yeah. And then, and so a relationship began uh, to evolve. Aha, relationship, pretty key. And you begin to learn and hear some of these stories. And then in 2003, uh, actually earlier, but in 2003, in May of 2003, uh, I led a group of about uh, 15, 18 people on the first ever street retreat in May of 2003. Can't believe that, 15 years ago. And, uh, and what's a street retreat? Uh, it's a one-on-one -on -one retreat between you and God, where the retreat center, the Wallace Streets of downtown Austin, you're mm -hmm. literally dropped off on the streets, and we spend uh, two to three days on the streets. So these these are these are people of faith who I presume in their lives are housed, and they're going yes. to live on the street. Yeah, okay. yeah, for those three days. But it's not about learning about homelessness. It's about uh, just a one-on-one -on -one retreat between mm -hmm. you and God. And let me tell you, that event, and I've done probably 50 of those in the intervening years uh, and have probably pushing close to a couple of hundred nights on the streets. Now you're sleeping with people. You're hanging out with them all day long. So the relationship went from the two or three minutes from the truck uh, multiple times uh, to a longer-term relationship. And that's when you begin to explore, you know, hey, why did you choose to be out here? What, and then you learn that they didn't choose to be out here. You learn about their family life because there's not one person that lives in this village uh, who didn't come from a profound, catastrophically broken family. Yeah. And so uh, that's where the connecting relationship, the human-to-human, heart-to-heart started uh, flowing out of that, but it's very slow because uh, that's kind of how God works because you just can't dump all this like you're taking a drink out of a fire hydrant. It's... Um, okay, so so in 2003, I think it's a street retreat, 2005, you're able to lift one person yeah. out of homelessness and get them into an RV. How did that lead to the place that we're in now? And maybe describe the place that we're in now. Well, um, I call this an RV park on steroids. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm a real estate developer. And so you, you do one RV, you lift one guy up, uh, and you're going, hmm, this is pretty inexpensive. Maybe we could build an RV park. And then you back up a few years, and when my family would go on long vacations periodically, uh, you know, the car camping thing, uh, I had a rule. I had a tent one night, camping cottage second night, hotel third night, tent, 
cottage hotel, tent cottage hotel. And most of the tents in the cottages were in RV parks, like a campground of America, a KOA. They're all over the United States. And I discovered long before Mobile Oak and Fishes this inherent, this interesting inherent sense of community inside these RV parks. Somebody could drive up in a, in a million dollar Prevost uh, and park right next to somebody in a $12,000 Jayco bunkhouse. And they'd come out and the families would interact, cook burgers together, play, and, and have a great time together. And I just thought that that was interesting. So now you fast forward, you buy the RV, lift the guy up into an RV park. And I'm thinking, I can develop an RV park. Yeah. And I went and hired a guy, uh, a consultant, to teach me everything there was to know about uh, building and operating uh, an RV park. And I began to put a business plan together while at the same time buying RV2, RV3, RV4, and operating in multiple different RV parks uh, because I'm a blocking and tackling, button and singling kind of a guy. You see, I'm throwing the mud on the wall. I'm not waiting for the plan and the land and the financing and the, all this because it would have never happened. I just started doing it one at a time. And then we started chasing after real estate. Uh, and, and that became very difficult. Uh, tried to partner with the city of Austin, and we encountered the Not My Backyard movement, sure. the NIMBY movement. Because uh, who would want who an would, RV park, let alone an RV park on steroids, catering to, to the, the most despised? That's correct. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Now they want it. So, so where are we in relationship to downtown Austin? Seven miles, uh, seven and a quarter miles, as the crow flies. Uh, uh, Northeast of downtown. About a half an hour drive. Yeah. And, uh, well, probably, yeah. Yeah. And 15, 20 minutes in decent traffic, half an hour in uh, rush hour. So when you walk around this village, you say it's an RV park on steroids. There are RVs here, but yeah. RVs are not the only thing that's no, here. No, that's correct. So what are some of the other housing options that are available in the village? And then what are some of the other things that have come along with this becoming a real community. Yeah, so the original plan was really kind of uh, built on top of uh, the KOA model, which had camping cabins and tent sites. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, because of my leadership spirit of inviting people into this vision, some architects came on board. And uh, uh, one guy says, I'd like to design a house. Uh, then another guy said, uh, I think we ought to partner with AIA Austin uh, and see if we can get a design contest going. It's the American Institute of Architects. American Institute of Ar Architects. They have a little sub thing called Design Voice uh, that they do here. And in 2014, we uh, unfolded a, a national uh, tiny house design competition. Uh, you can still go to the website, tinyvictories.org, tinyvictories.org. And um, we had about 65 or something submissions. I can't remember, somewhere in that number. Uh, I was one of the judges. It was a blast. Uh, there were four finalists, 11 semifinalists, and uh, we built uh, all four of the finalists a, a number of times, and a few of the semi-finalists and then other architects and builders have come on board and built some other 
designed and built some other fantastic units. And so what we have is the greatest eclectic um, uh, tiny home uh, village of any place. Because everybody thinks of the tiny home as these little shotgun deals they're building on top of trailers. Uh, which are fine and kind of cute, but what we've done is something. I mean, ours are built on slabs, and they're just little. They're micro homes. Mm -hmm. We actually call them micro homes. Mm -hmm. So, um, someone wants to get off the street. They come talk to your organization. What do they? What do they have to do in return? Uh, they actually go through other organizations. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, there's a homeless management information system in Austin. There's one in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, and within this system, there's a uh, an assessment model called a coordinated assessment. I'm certain Seattle has nearly identically the same thing. Uh, they go through this to first ascertain if they're chronically homeless, and there's a definition. I won't go into the definition, but there's a definition that we ascribe to. Uh, and then they're uh, scored based upon their vulnerability uh, from a 1 to a 17, a 1 being... Uh, the cream of the crop of the chronically homeless, uh, they have less issues, mm -hmm. to a 17, which is a super high vulnerable, something bad can happen yeah. uh, while they're out there. And they come down a funnel, metaphorically, to us, and we begin uh, to select, uh, based upon a demographic uh, profile that we're trying to achieve here in the village, uh, they go through another application process with us, an interview process, and then a uh, if they're selected, uh, it takes a couple of weeks to move them in. This whole process can take months. Okay. And and so when they're here, what are their commitments? What's what's that relationship with you? Do they have to pay rent? Do they have to maintain certain standards? Do they have any role in governance of the, the community? Yeah. Uh, three fundamental rules. Yeah. Uh, rule number one, above all are the rules, no ifs, ands, or buts. You must pay rent. You don't pay rent, you will lose your right to live here. Hmm. Uh, we have a, uh, the, I mean, our rent collection is phenomenal. And why is that such a foundational rule for you? Because people need to have skin in the game. If you don't have skin in the game, uh, there's there's a phenomenal, there's phenomenally less buy-in to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's less stewardship. If you don't uh, have that skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Rule number two is you must be obedient to civil law. I don't make civil law. I don't agree with all civil law. And I am not the enforcer of civil law. Mm -hmm. That's up to the police department. Um, and then the third rule is, is like a homeowners or a condominium association, there are certain rules of living in the community. Uh, like if you have a pet, the dog must be on a leash. You must be on the other end of the leash. Dog poos in the yard. You got to bend over and pick it up. Uh, no trash or stuff, or uh, you're limited to what you can put out in front of your house. Uh, yeah. Just simple uh, rules. But more importantly than that, what uh, what we do organizationally is mirror what we expect. So when I'm walking around every day this property. I see a cigarette butt on the ground. I bend over and pick it up and I go throw it away. If I see that somebody missed their dog poo, 
which doesn't happen often, I go grab a poo bag and pick it up for them. Mm-hmm. Or see pieces of trash around. Yeah. As a result, when you drove around this place, what you saw was a spotless uh, environment because everybody or most everybody was participating in, in keeping this clean. There was another question you had in that. Uh, uh, I asked a question about governance and, and yeah we have a community council they're elected uh once a year okay uh there's uh i think nine on that council eight eight each elected by section and then a uh, uh one uh, elected at large uh, that composes council uh, they meet uh i think twice a month um uh, and they're having conversations about things and ideas come up and sometimes those ideas uh, get implemented. They're they're not governing what's happening out here, but they're participating uh, in the governance of what happens out here. Um, Those decisions, you know, the the absolute governance is maintained by mobile loads and fishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as the as the landholder, I can understand that. Well, that's uh, that's uh, why would you? There's no place where, I mean, a democracy is kind of a silly little notion. We're, we're a representative democracy, uh, at best, mm-hmm. uh, but you've abdicated your right to govern when you elect somebody to govern, other than unelecting that person. But we're not in a position where we can be unelected as a, and so. We're more like a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> I hate to use uh, that word. Yeah. Someone arrives here. They enter their house. What are they finding? Is it blank slate? Do they have to go find their furniture? What What's sending the signal to them that they're, they're cared for? completely furnished with everything on the planet that you need, with the exception of clothing. Hmm. So, uh, decorated to your personality. Hmm. Uh, there's an interview process when you've been selected that asks you what's your favorite colors and things and themes in life. And we try to put all that together so that when you move in, you're moving into something that semi looks like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, brand new bedding, that'll be mattresses, sheets, pillows, blankets. Uh, that must be amazing for them. Yeah. Um, so when I walked around before our interview, what really struck me was not just the housing. I had heard about the housing, but it was all the other things. And some of them fall into the community works category, and other of them were just amazing partnerships. Can you talk about those two aspects of the village? Yeah, so uh, when you enter into the village, the first thing you encounter is an outdoor Alamo Draft House movie theater. And I'm talking a, a real uh, a refurbed old drive-in uh, movie theater screen giant with a 500-seat amphitheater. Surrounding that uh, amphitheater is the largest bed and breakfast in the state of Texas, which <laughs> with, we believe, the highest occupancy rate of any B&B that we know of. Describe those units. Uh, they're eclectic. They're, um, they're tiny houses uh, built on RVs. There's RVs. There's old uh, Airstreams, new Airstreams. Uh, uh, there's a uh, drivable class uh, C uh, motorhome uh, there. There's this thing called a casita, spelled with a K, 
that's a, a boxy looking, very high tech, very expensive uh, piece of equipment. There's uh, four TPs, very large uh, TPs. And, and this is for anyone. Anyone who's visiting Austin can stay here. Can this is not. Log on to Airbnb and, uh, and make a reservation. This is a different thing than. The, the homeless neighbors who are here. That's correct. This is this is general population come and That's correct. enjoy the site. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have, you have other things going on. Well, we have a medical clinic here, full-time behavioral health care, probably 10 full-time employees uh, uh, managed by the integral care. Uh, we have primary health care coming from uh, uh, community care clinics or uh, part of our Central Texas, Travis County uh, healthcare system. We have a community market uh, that's a small little convenience store but showcases products that are being made on site. We have an art house, uh, pottery operation, blacksmithing, wood shop. Uh, and these are the residents doing those, those yes, activities yeah. and selling that product and, selling those and products. getting the, the Money in return. Yeah. yeah. So last year, 2017, we distributed about $400,000 worth of that income. Wow. Uh, a little over four. Uh, we have a catering concession operation. We have movie nights. When the movies are on, the uh, community grills open, burgers, hot dogs, frito pie. Uh, uh, just, it's just awesome. And the men and women that are working that primarily are men and women that were formerly chronically homeless. Full-blown organic farming operation with animal husbandry, uh, chickens, honeybees, uh, goats, all the food that's produced on sites, free to the men and women that live on sites. So mm-hmm. we try to get the healthiest, uh, cleanest, uh, tastiest food on the planet into the bellies of people that can't afford to buy an organic heirloom tomato. Talk, tell me about how Paul Mitchell came to be on the site. <laughs> well, it's uh, John Paul DeJoria. Uh, Paul Mitchell is the name of the company that he owns, and that was the original. Uh, his partner was Paul Mitchell. Uh, Paul Mitchell has passed away, so John Paul Dejoria. Um, it's just a, you know, a guy that I hired about nine years ago that was uh, running at that time our gardening thing uh, before we had the village, but built the farm. Uh, met a woman at uh, at church that used to nanny for John Paul and Eloise uh, DeJoria when their kids were young. And uh, and then she became uh, uh, the executive director of his foundation and ended up getting him out here. It's been a good, solid, uh, you know, multi-year relationship with him. And now you have a barber shop on site that stocks his products and <laughs> it, it'll stock his products yeah the grand opening of that uh, salon will be uh this saturday i think awesome um so this first phase you have what 240 units is the building roughly okay uh and you have a second phase coming you're in a capital campaign right now is that Correct. right yeah so what is that capital campaign intending to do well we launched a capital campaign in uh in november uh last year a $60 million capital campaign mm. to do phase two, phase three, and phase four. In mm. round numbers, each phase is about $20 million okay. bucks. So phase two, which we have the land and we're at the very end of the entitlement process on that property, uh, is about a $20 million project. Wow. And so it'll add another 
305, 310 uh, homes. So, okay, so between here and the second phase, you would have a little over 500. Probably over 600 people. Okay, over 600 people. What's the total homeless population in Austin? Uh, in chronically homeless terms, in my uh, estimation, maybe 1,200. 1,200. So that's half of the chronically homeless population. Yeah. Are you trying to solve homelessness? No, no one can. Okay. Why do you think that? Well, the, nobody wants to recognize why. And so uh, the profound catastrophic loss of family. Um, so if you want to return back to how it used to be, we have to uh, refocus our energies on coming up underneath the family unit. And so until we as a society culturally begin to recognize that, uh, first of all, I don't think anything is solvable. I've never seen anything solved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen a math equation solved. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm 62 years old. Uh, I've been subjected to every solve-a-thon, cure-a-thon known to man. And uh, we stand here in 2018 with no solutions or cures. Mm. And so, to me, those words get leverage to excite people. Uh, but we never end up. And so we have a, you know, our 10-year plan was the 10-year plan to mitigate homelessness. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think we can come a long way to mitigating uh, the problem and making it a lot easier to deal with mm -hmm. uh, in our in our respective communities, but to solve it completely is uh, that's that's not our goal. Okay. Our goal is to bring palliative relief, mm. and if you look up uh, the term palliative care in Wikipedia, is the relieving of the suffering associated with disease without pursuing the cure for the disease. And I will tell you, in the medical industry. I believe that the greatest advancements in medical uh, technology has been through palliative care. People that have cancer live longer. People that were HIV AIDS live longer. People that were diabetic. Uh, we've learned how to treat and care and they're living longer and it, it just on and on and on, uh, uh, but no cure. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay, so if you're not if you're not seeking to mitigate, if you're palliative, well, we're mitigating. Or, or, sorry, sorry. Yeah. If you're not seeking to solve, if you're mitigating and you're palliative, it seems like another one of the big roles that you have is setting forth a different model. I mean, I feel like that's embedded in your entrepreneurial yeah. background. Where has this idea spread? I think. Um, um, there's movement uh, to spread. Um, it's uh, it's it's not on fire yet. Okay. Um, I think when you're moving from a transactional model that housing will solve homelessness to our model that housing will never solve homelessness but community will, where you're moving from a transactional model to a relational model. You know, I live here. And a lot of other people live here that have never been homeless, and we want to be here. And it's and it's a community involvement. That movement and movements in general actually take a long time to to make something happen. So I think we're on a 10, 20 year 
uh, journey here in order for this to uh, begin to migrate out of Austin, Texas uh, to uh, other places. And so we're seeing that movement, but I can't necessarily point you to, hey, you ought to go to this town here mm -hmm. and see that they're replicating what we're what we're doing here. Okay. It's not easy. Well, let's let's kind of end where we started. Um, started talking about stories, and stories, of course, can be truths and they can be lies. What's the biggest lie we tell about homelessness, and what's the biggest truth that you've discovered? Well, the biggest truth that I've discovered is that the, the single greatest cause is the profound catastrophic loss of family. So let's just get that out there and let that marinate into the world and uh, and uh, and do that. And there's so many lies uh, out there. Mark Twain writes, you know, uh, about uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Don't don't trust any of that uh, any of that stuff. I think. You know, the lies are, they're all drug addicts. They've chosen this. Uh, why don't they just pick themselves up by the bootstraps? You know, the go get a job mentality. Uh, these are the things that we've allowed uh, to surface to the top. And they are, uh, they are statements on our part as a community, as a village, that says, because they've chosen this, uh, or because they won't go to work, I, I don't have to mess with that deal. That's not that's not something that's inside my wheelhouse. Right. So we make up uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics in order to separate us from the reality of what's happening out there on the on the streets. And your and your call to us is to reach out and connect. Reach out. Yeah, there's dysfunction. People will ask me all the time, Bryce, what's it going to be like to have 250 of these people uh, in your community? And my response is the same. I says, I think it'll be a lot like your family. And then people's eyes get big. And I go, I know. It's a train wreck, man. You know? Yeah, yeah. And we got to deal with it. Yeah. You know? It, it's our deal. It ain't going away. And so uh, the only way to deal with it is to jump into the middle of that deal. So unless you move to an island and uh, where nobody else lives, you can't insulate yourself from human beings. So if you can't do that, let's go in and, and just embrace it full force. Alan, it was such a pleasure to talk to you today. And thank you for sharing the story of Mobile Loaves and Fishes and Community First and Community Works. And... God bless you and good luck on everything you're doing. No, I appreciate it, Bryce. Thanks for yeah. doing this. To give a sense of what the Community First Village looks like, I've shared some images on the Homeland Lab website, and I invite you to come check them out. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. 
You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>